Good morning and welcome to all those that are worshiping online with us at all of our different sites. And if you're a guest, glad you're here. And I can't help but wonder sometimes if we feel like, wow, we got out of bed, we chose to come here, when in fact, oftentimes God purposed you to be here. And I pray that you'll feel that today and that the purpose of your coming is to experience God's goodness and we want to celebrate that together. We're continuing the series called Up, looking at the Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 120 through 134, with the invitation to reclaim the practice of reading the Psalms in your mornings or evenings that the Psalms begin to penetrate your life because they lift up your life on so many fronts. They have for all of history, for the people of God. So we encourage you to move in that direction. We're looking today at Psalm 130. And Psalm 130 is a really short psalm, which you might think would bring a really short message. Do you think so? No. (laughs) It's such a rich psalm. It's so uplifting. It's called a penitential psalm, the penitential meaning penance. Its theme is the confession of sin and the assurance of forgiveness. The confession of sin and the assurance of forgiveness, Psalm 130. And I've really enjoyed studying this one. It's been a delight. I've been studying it for about a month. And to my surprise, I thought this was a more well, or um, not as known psalm compared to the others. And yet, it's a psalm that has had more impact on significant spiritual leaders in church history than I ever realized. It was um, the favorite psalm of Augustine. It was the favorite psalm of Martin Luther. It was the favorite psalm and high-impact psalm for Charles Wesley. In fact, in my study, I found this photo of Charles Wesley, I put it up for you, and I'm looking at this photo and I'm thinking, oh my, take the wig off, it's a doppelganger of, it's a smitten image of Pastor Zach Bush, just take a look at that. (laughs) Zach, I don't know where you are today, but this is you. And I just couldn't get over it, so I had to show. This is Charles Wesley. You know him more because he's the founder of Methodism. He is the greater of, a great writer of the, the hymns that we have sung for so long, great hymns. He wrote the great Easter anthem, Christ the Lord is Risen Today. He wrote the great Christmas anthem, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I mean, then God would use him to impact the Western world in amazing ways through gospel sharing and church planting. He was born in 1707. His mother, Suzanne, had 18 children. Eight of them died in childbirth, and they thought Charles was going to die. He didn't. He lived. His mom invested into his life faith. Unfortunately, he is what you would call a dutiful Christian, that he was more about in his Christian journey in his early years about the rules than about the relationship. And it would impact him greatly. He goes off to Oxford University, and while there, he starts the Holy Club. It was a society of young men who came together for the pursuit of holy living. And they created 22 rules with daily accountability. Well, you can just see where that's going. At the end of every day, let's roll out the 22 things. How did you do? And he became very in touch with the fact that he was falling short of God's standard And in many um, experiences that he had, he felt like he was falling out of favor with God. And it so burdened him, he began to question his own salvation. Am I even a Christian? He got in touch with his own sinfulness in a very, very deep way. And and I think it's good to take a moment and let's talk about sin. That's part of what this psalm is all about. 
We don't talk a lot about sin, do we? We'll talk about mistakes, about failures, but sometimes you got to just look in the mirror and say, this is sin. And what is sin? Well, sin means literally to miss the mark, to miss the mark of God's holiness. It is to fall out of doing God's will and doing your own will instead. It's about breaking the laws of God. It's about violating the very character of God. These are the things that shape it. But I really appreciate one theologian who says that it's breaking shalom with God. That the peace of God that he wants for us to know sometimes gets broken. Um, It always gets broken because of sin. So we don't feel that peace. And this psalm is about that restorative side about peace. And some of you may have felt this in your own life and journey that you have been in a place like Charles Wesley where you feel like maybe you've fallen out of favor with God. And maybe you've even questioned your own salvation. That's where Charles Wesley was and where he found himself. Well, his conversion happens in 1738. He's now 31 years of age. He goes to church like many of you came today. And the choir begins to sing Psalm 130, and it confronts him. And he yields his life to Jesus Christ during the song. And he begins a transformation in his life, and God now sends him out on a mission that will change the Western world. And in his response to Psalm 130, he writes these words, I labored, I waited, I prayed to feel who loved me and gave himself for me. He wanted to experience the love and the peace of Jesus Christ. I now found myself at peace with God and rejoice in the hope of a loving Christ. What a picture. So how do we as sinners know and experience the peace of God and the love of God? Well, the answer is found in this wonderful psalm, Psalm 130. It's been our practice this summer to stand and to read it together, so I invite you to do that at all of our sites, even at home, stand and just take in the word of God and join in as we read together in harmony. Join me. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord, more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. You may be seated. The question I want to entertain today is this. How can I, a sinner who breaks the heart of God, by breaking the laws of God, be right with God. So I stepped into it and put my outline together. I encourage you, when you read the scriptures, stay with it long enough and try to outline what you're reading. Truth will pop off the page for you. And the response to the question, I believe, is in the psalm, verses one and two, looking at, first of all, the psalmist cries. I cry. And secondly, I receive in verses three and four. And third, we're gonna look at how the psalmist waits in verses five and six, and then how he invites, I invite in verses seven and eight. But let's start with, I cry. And I want you to notice in the psalm that the cry is not a casual appeal. 
The cry is not a soft whimper. The cry is a 911 emergency call in verses 1 and 2. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. And you see, latent in these words right here, his cry. Hear me, answer me, heal me. Hear me, answer me, heal me. Hear me, answer me, heal me. This is what the psalmist is doing. He's in this depth, this place of despair. If you ever call 911, the voice on the other end is going to ask you a number of questions, two specific questions. The first question, what services um, are you requiring? And secondly, what is your location? That is, we can't get help to you unless we can get to you, so where are you? And the psalmist states his location. He says, out of the depths, I cry to you. So we find him in the depths. And I think we could pause right now. And for some in the room, um, you're going, this could today now be my new favorite song because it's where you are. Or someone that is very close to you, it's where they are. And you know they are just in the depths. And you may not even know why you're in that given place. It may be the tension that Charles Wesley had. The sin that caused him to feel like God's favor was being removed and it was creating a depth, a despair um, that he was hard-pressed to put words to. But that's the picture you have in the psalm at this given point. The psalmist states his location, it's in the depths. And in the Hebrew scriptures, you find that the word depth, this very phrase, out of the depths, this depths, is correlated most often throughout the Hebrew scriptures with a specific word, and that is water. It has to do with water, and oftentimes water in despair. This is just going back a little bit into Psalm 69. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I can't put my feet at the bottom of the water. And he continues, I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I'm worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Hear me. Answer me. Help me is the psalmist's cry in this given place. And it's a powerful reminder here and something that takes us into a place of understanding of what it means to be in water when you feel like you can't touch the bottom and you feel like you're drowning. It's when life feels like it's, it's terrifying, you're just filled with fear. I'm just curious about this because if you take the literal application, I would assume that many of you have been in a place where you have almost drowned. How many of you have almost drowned in your lifetime at one point or another? Raise your hand so I get some idea. They're a good number. That doesn't surprise me at all. I had the same experience. Carrie and I were canoeing on the St. Croix River. The winds were just blowing stiff. We could not keep that canoe going down the river. It kept going sideways, and eventually we tipped it. No problem for Carrie, who's a foot shorter than me and can swim well, and I can swim well too, but my long body, my feet got caught in an undertow. In all of my life, I've always wondered, what's a big deal with an undertow? I learned what a big deal it is with an undertow. An undertow literally is like somebody is taking your feet and they're pulling you under and with all the strength I had, I'm trying to keep my head above water but it is just wanting to pull me downstream and I'm fighting to keep my head above and finally we came out from under the undertow and I got to the beach and I just lay there, thank you God, thank you God, thank you. Drowning is a terrifying experience. 
is not something anybody wants to go through. This is the cry that you find from the psalmist here. And quite a reminder it is. It clarifies for us this psalm that the depths in Psalm 130 is not the feeling of drowning that comes from the undertow of losing a loved one. And that's a real undertow. When you lose someone you love, even a pet, I lost my dog in January. I I still deal with the the undertow of losing my dog. It's an amazing thing how losing someone, it's an undertow. It takes us to the depths. That's not what the psalmist is talking about. He's not talking about the betrayal of a friend or the disappointments of life, those common things that happen. He's not even talking about the concern of children. And every grandparent and every parent in the room who's had children, and if your kids are in a hard place, you feel the undertow and the concern. You're brought down into the depths with them, but that's not the depths. It's a deeper depth that the psalmist is speaking to here. What is the depth referred to in this psalm? Well, you you have to see it in verse three. It relates to... Sin, his iniquities. He cries out from the depth. He's become aware of his sins and he cries to God, from the depth to God. And what he's doing is he's confessing his sin. He's owning his guilt. He's coming terms with the reality of who he is in his fallenness in the presence of a holy God. So he's confessing, he's owning, he's admitting, he's crying out for mercy. Hear me, answer me, help me, hear me, answer me, help me, hear me, answer me, help me. That's what he's doing in this given place. Have you ever been in that place where you have such remorse for your sin that you're crying out, oh, hear me, answer me, help me, oh Lord. That's the psalmist's journey. So how can I, a sinner, who breaks the heart of God by breaking the laws of God, be right with God. Oh, I cry out. I confess my sin. I own my guilt and I bring it to him from the depths of my sin. He brings me mercy from above. Secondly, I receive. It's the call after we confess. In fact, receiving what? We receive forgiveness. We find it in verses three and four. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. Oh, here we find part of our purpose for life, to serve the Lord. And these things relate together. First of all, let me say something. If you, Lord, kept a record of my sins, here you have a godly guy making ungodly decisions. So it's so easy to think of these psalms as somebody who was alive thousands of years ago and now we're coming in and it feels distant. No, it's not distant, it's right here. Because many of you see yourselves as generally godly, doing good. But has anyone here at least one time in your life done something ungodly? Raise your hand so we can all see. <laughs> you know, we're right with the psalmist right here. He's taken us home. We entered into this place. But I want you to notice he still cries out to God. Godly guy does ungodly things, but he cries out to God. And notice how he cries out. He says, if you, Lord, and kept a record of sins, Lord, Lord appears two times. And the English translators of Hebrew are helping us here because if you notice, the first Lord is all capital letters, L-O-R-D, referring to the personal name of God, Yahweh, and it references his his judgment, that this is a God who judges, but the God who is merciful. He is the personal God of the people of God. And secondly, you look at the, the Lord in its capital L, small case O-R-D, referring to Adonai, which is master and 
sovereign one over all things. He is the one who sees all things in our life. Now come back. If you, Lord, who sees all things, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? That is, if God showed you all of your sin at once, could you stand? Yeah. No, we'd fall over dead. We'd fall over dead. Now, if if you're going to cry out, to somebody at a point of need, cry out to somebody, call out to somebody who can do something about your need. And that's what the psalmist does. He cries out, oh Lord, Yahweh. The one, yes, I know who judges, but the one who is merciful. Adonai, the master, the sovereign who sees all things. Because of your mercy, you, you don't keep the record of wrongs as we receive the forgiveness of sin. What a beautiful promise we have of the the word of God, of God himself given to us. I just love this picture as he gives us this beautiful call to be able to come into his presence and to receive the forgiveness that he has for us. He calls out for the maker in heaven and earth to give him mercy, and what a gift it is. Hear me, answer me, heal me, because he hears you, he answers you. He heals you. I want this God in my life. And I pray you do as well. I think of all these undertoes, these these pressure points that bring us under. I've already identified a few of them. Can I just tell you, there's none deeper, none darker than our own personal sin. It undergirds all the rest of it. It pulls us way down into the depths. And it's important we take a moment and just think through how we actually live out this promise in our lives because I think we tend to see two different extremes. If I could just take a moment on each. On one extreme, there are those of us who really believe that God is holy and we believe that we are sinful, but we believe that we're so sinful that we are unworthy to come to God because of our personal sin. It's so interesting to see how this plays out in our lives because our natural reflex when there's Normal kinds of trials and tribulations is for us to cry out to God, and we gladly do it. But for some reason, when it comes to the consequences of our personal sin, we hesitate going to God, and we have more of a mindset, I can't ask God for help because I'm getting what I deserve. On what basis can I approach God in light of the person that I am and the things that I do, and therefore, we don't come to God? But boy, if you make your big or sin bigger than God, you know you're not going to go to God. But if you believe that God is bigger than your sin, you're gonna be glad that you can come to God and say, hear me, answer me, and help me. And then on the other extreme is, I think, more common today. And that is a low view of God that gives us a low view of sin so that I can kind of live my life however I wanna live my life. And this is far too common today. And it's a concern for all of us. That is, if you have a low view of God and a low view of sin, then sin becomes irrelevant. It's not something you even pay much attention to. When you're at a point of need, you don't cry out to God in need. People will say to you, you know, your sin isn't that big of a deal. Just just let it go. It's no big deal. Therefore, we want to believe that to be true. So we live in this low view of God and low view of sin, and then we don't go to God. Because as the passage, can I put the passage back up on the screen again? I want to call out something in it that really speaks to me in this journey. It says, if you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. So when you're in the depths and you cry out to God from the depths to God, you revere God. And now your life becomes about serving God. If you have a low view of God and a low view of sin, 
You tend not to revere God. You don't serve him. You serve yourself. So the floodgates of serving God's purposes, the joy in life comes with serving God's purposes, by the way, happens as we understand our right relationship with God. And it begins with this beautiful rhythm of confession and receiving his forgiveness. If you want to know how holy God is and how much he cares about sin, then just look at the cross. Why is there a cross? Why do we need a cross? Why does Jesus go to the cross after all? Because of a love that sees who we are in our sinfulness that we can't, we keep falling short like Charles West, we just keep falling short and we know that we do and when we get in touch of it, we come to the depths and when we're in the depths, we cry out for mercy, hear me, answer me and help me. But here we find this picture, this beautiful understanding of the grace and the love of God that would provide a cross where Jesus would endure suffering in order to receive the penalty, the punishment of your sin on that cross so that we don't have to and we can be in right relationship with him. Through faith in Jesus Christ, having confessed our sin, having received forgiveness, the gate opens up to have right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I love what Paul says in Romans 5.8, but God shows us his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were his enemies, Christ died for us. He isn't waiting for us to get our act together. Many people think if I just get myself together, then I'll come to God because I don't feel worthy. No, that's the wrong thinking. That's where Charles Wesley landed himself. No, we are not worthy. We will not get our act together. We just come to the foot of the cross. When Jesus is on the cross to the Roman soldiers who are killing him, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Unbelievable this God, this forgiveness that comes from him. And I'm so glad that it does. The gravity of our sin, friends, is covered by the immensity of his love. Oh, thank you, Lord, <laughs> right? The gravity of our sin is covered by the immensity of his love, and so we can cry out for mercy. Mercy, a definition. Withholding what I deserve. It's when God withholds what I really deserve because he's provided a path and it's taken upon his own son, that burden, so that we can have freedom, not to do what we want, but that we can come in humility with gratitude and say, I know I'm sinful, and that you're holy, and that you've opened the path for me. And yet, can I say something about this mercy of God? This may surprise you. Sometimes the mercy of God allows you to go to the depths, to the place of despair, for the purpose of having you cry out to him that we can continue in sin. We can get habitual with the same sin. And we confess it, but we get in this stuck pattern and we keep repeating it. And he doesn't want us to repeat it anymore. And sometimes in his mercy, he allows us to go to the depths so that we will cry out to him and receive his mercy and experience the freedom of our faith in Jesus Christ. That's what he wants for us. And in my study over the course of the last month, another great theologian and pastor um, who was impacted by Psalm 130 really powerfully was John Owen. And I was so surprised to read this because I hold these people with such high regard. And I realize, oh, there are people like us who have to go through their journey of dying to self, dealing with sin, and coming to God. And he comes to God impacted by Psalm 130. And through this psalm, he writes, the Lord was pleased to visit me with sore affliction, whereby I was brought to the mouth of the grave under which my soul was oppressed with horror and darkness. It was on account of this, I cried out to the Lord. 
He'd been stuck in this sin place and God's mercy allowed him to experience the depth of his sin for the purpose of crying out for the mercy of God. Oh, hear me, answer me, and help me. And God heard and he answered and he healed him and would use him to be a profound voice for the church of Jesus Christ. This is how God works sometimes. We hit bottom and we turn to him. I just have to say, self-help is not any use to us, okay? I know there's a lot of dollars being made in self-help literature today. Self-help counselors. I'm all for counselors. I'm an advocate for counselors. But the psalmist is, is really aware, I cannot save myself, neither can you, and neither can I. We turn to the living God, and he's there in his mercy to meet us, and we give thanks for that. Confession is the key that really unlocks the door of forgiveness, so could I give an encouragement to you? If there's a practice you really want to hone in your life, let it be confession. And if there's a gift you really want to receive in your life, let it be forgiveness. So let's get practical. When was the last time you confessed your sin? To God? To anyone else? This rhythm is so important. Confess your sin and then receive the forgiveness of sin. To my surprise, again, throughout um, now, I've, gee, I've gotten to be older. I can, I'm a lot older. I used to be really young. <laughs> I'm a lot older. But, you know, there's goodness in that too. And I, I welcome aging and God's goodness in it. I celebrate it. I treasure it more. But one of the surprises for me in my journey is meeting with so many people through the years. 42 years in ministry now. 42. It's been a long time. You're going, man, you are old, aren't you? <laughs> There's been a pattern that has really surprised me with people who have confessed their sin, received forgiveness, and live in guilt. I go, why is that? Does God want us to live in guilt? No. He does not. So we're not really embracing the fullness of his promise, right? Um, and there's so many Christ followers who confess, who receive forgiveness, but do not live in their forgiveness. Can I tell you there's a difference from receiving forgiveness and living in your forgiveness, and God wants you to live in your forgiveness. But I sat on that a little bit, go, why is it that we have such a hard time living in our forgiveness? Let me give you three reasons why. First reason has to do with you. You just keep reliving your sin, like a tape that you play over again. Idiot, why did I do that? Why did I say that? You just never let yourself go. And you don't give yourself permission to live in your forgiveness. Sometimes it's just you. Get yourself out of the way. The Lord forgave you. You get to be free. Enjoy the freedom of it. Kill that tape. Burn that tape. Get rid of that tape. Throw it into the depths somewhere else. Okay, the other is others keep reminding you. <laughs> Some people are ledger people. They keep a ledger of all the things that you've done because they love to take that and slap you in the face with it at the strategic time that makes you feel low. I pray that's not you. We just read, if the Lord would keep an account and a record of all your sins, implying that he doesn't under his mercy. Why do we as people keep a ledger of all the things? When you did this then, and then you bring it back and point it to them because it keeps you from moving forward so you live in that guilt. The third reason is simply because God may be prompting you to grow further than you've been willing to grow. You may have confessed your sin to God, but you haven't gone to the people whom you've offended. And therefore, there's a hovering guilt until you finish the work of forgiveness that calls us in humility and in brokenness from the depths to say, I'm so sorry, God. 
And I'm so sorry to whomever you offended. There's something powerfully freeing when you say to a spouse or to a friend or to whomever, I'm so sorry for what I said and did. Would you forgive me? Whether they do or not, God does. And he sets you free. You've done your part to that given end. Celebrate it. First John reminds us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't be living in um, your, your guilt. Live in your forgiveness. And the basis of your forgiveness is in the character of God, not in your confession alone. It's because he is faithful and just. So to not live in your forgiveness, common sense means that you are rejecting the character of God and his gracious faithfulness and justice that promises to set you free. So be set free. And enjoy the life of faith that God intends because he covers our sin to that end. How can I, one who breaks God's heart because of sin, who breaks the laws of God, how can I be right with God? I cry out to him. I receive forgiveness. And then third, the final two, just briefly, I want to comment on is I wait. And we're not very good at waiting, but this is part of our call, and we have intentional kind of waiting. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. I love the emphasis. This is a 24-7 kind of waiting that we have. A couple things stand out to me. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. The psalmist is now having received forgiveness after crying out, dealing, experiencing the peace that passes all understanding. All is well. My whole being um, is it peace because of the beauty of God's mercy that set me free. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. This is not an idle kind of waiting. This is not a waiting where you get bored, like waiting in a line at a, for a cash register to open up or whatever the case might be. This is an intentional kind of waiting. It's consumed with um, being consumed by fixing your eyes on Jesus and his word, which delivers a hope for your life today and always. It's not a boring kind of waiting. And you know my little axiom on this, that boredom is the result of an inactive mind. So when your kids come running up to you, Mom, I'm so bored. Dad, I'm so bored. Just say to them, Boredom is the result of an inactive mind. <laughs> it's a parenting tip. These are all free things I give to you. <laughs> activate your mind and you will not be bored. So what do you activate your mind with? You activate your mind with the word of God. Be in the word of God because you will find hope that helps you with everyday life. I can't emphasize this enough. It's not an irrelevant book. It has life. It has feet. It runs after us. It holds us. It gives us life and journey. Be in the word of God together. And then you find, well, what is it he's waiting for? And it tells us so very clearly. I wait for the Lord more than the watchman. Day and night, 24-7, I'm waiting for the Lord to come because I'm free. I'm wanting him to come. If you're not free, you don't want him to come. It's like the little kid who's been naughty all day and mom says, you wait till your dad gets home. And you're thinking, dad, please don't come home. And dad comes home and you're afraid of dad because he's going to learn what you did and what he's going to do to you. But then there's the childhood experience, and I pray that you had it, when dad comes home and you just beat the band to the front door and go, daddy, 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 and you hug him, and you know he's going to open his arms, and he's going to welcome you with open arms as well. This is the waiting of the psalmist. 24-7, I can't wait for you to come through those doors. Come home, oh Lord. 
So grateful for my great-great-grandfather. I never showed much interest in my genealogy until recent years. This happens when you get older, you start caring about this. And I have an account of my great-great-grandfather, Esten, whom we named our first son after, who was a devout follower of Christ. And we have an account of his um, last breath, his dying days, those last moments, and his last words. And I'm so grateful. His last words in Norwegian, he came from Norway, Norway as an immigrant to southwest Minnesota. Why not southwest California? I have no idea. <laughs> southwest, southwest Minnesota is what it is. So that's where we are. And, and he, he said, uh, the account is, he said in Norwegian, in so Jesus, come, come, come quickly. They're the last words of the New Testament. He was waiting, couldn't wait. Let's leave the portal of this world into the one to come, to the arms that are gonna be opened up to us. So how do I, as a sinner, who breaks the heart of God um, by breaking the laws of God, how can I be right with God? I cry out to him in my sinful place. I receive his forgiveness and I wait with anticipation, good anticipation, oh, come quickly. And then finally the psalmist reminds us, I invite. And here we find the invitation is so beautiful. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. He's almost preaching here. Put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. He himself will redeem Israel from He himself will redeem Israel from Who does that for you? God does that for you. He's the only one who does that. He covers all your sin. And so the characteristic, I think, the evidence of a person who has received forgiveness, who's cried from the depths to the Lord for mercy and received mercy through forgiveness that comes in Jesus Christ is marked with two things, wonder, wonder, and a desire that other people would know. Don't keep it to yourself. He wants all of Israel to know that all of their sins are covered. Your hope is in him. Come to him. And I say the same to you. If you're living in the depths, if you've not dealt with your sin, you can't. Let God deal with, cry out to him. His mercy will come to you. Receive his forgiveness and you will find yourself waiting, living in your forgiveness with joy and anticipation and you'll find your life marked with wonder. It's unnatural to not have wonder when all your sins are forgiven. Wouldn't you agree? That's unnatural. And so I want to invite you to find the wonder of what has been accomplished by Jesus Christ on our behalf with a simple little exercise. Go home today and get a little sheet of paper. I got here a post-it note. And write down three words. I am forgiven. You post that on your refrigerator. Put that in your pocket. And every time you put your hand in your pocket, you'll be, I'm forgiven. I am forgiven. Friends, this is the greatest gift that's given to us in life. Have the wonder and invite people into knowing the journey of God's beautiful mercy that meets us at our time of need. That's what Charles Wesley did, 1791, on his deathbed. Wesley, with friends gathered around him, shared his final words, holding their hands. He said, farewell, farewell. The best of all is God is with us.
And one of his most loved hymns, friends, is a hymn that recounts his conversion after encountering Psalm 130. And you know the hymn, And Can It Be? And here are the lyrics. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me? who caused his pain for me, who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Let's celebrate with wonder the gift and the wonder of this beautiful mercy from Jesus. Stand and let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we stand, and in a moment, we're going to sing before we go just briefly a song of affirmation and praise to you, but hear this prayer. Hear me and answer me and help me. Lord, somebody here today is in that place, and they're crying out for the depths. Oh, hear me, answer me, and lead me. Heal me, oh, Lord. Bring that healing by your good hand, and in this moment, we just, we confess our sin. I confess my blank. You fill in the blank. What is your sin? Just name it. Own it before the Lord. I confess my. And I receive your forgiveness. Now help me to live in that forgiveness. So I can say with the psalmist, you are the one with mercy when I cry. Hear me, answer me, help me. You hear, you answer, and you help. And we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.